This podcast does not provide medical advice, nor legal advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my 44 years of nursing experience to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, and here to ask questions that you may have while listening to our podcast. We are both here because we believe that if you have an advanced care plan in place, the better prepared you will be to make difficult decisions. So please relax and get yourself something to eat, drink, put your feet up, and thank Mm -hmm. you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me as we talk about brain fog. In the first half, Charlie talks about a death party, and I have the recipe of the week. In the second half, I'll be talking about brain fog, which can occur with chemotherapy, grief, serious illness, COVID, long COVID. Uh, And in our third half, Charlie has a poem. Charlie, what was was that in... um, laughing when that guy would come on with holding a flower and saying, like, and now a poem? Yes, Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson, and that's it, right. It was, and what, it, it, what was it, like a, an oversized daisy? Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. I, I remember that. Yeah, 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 yes. And what, what was it that he would, was it was that what he said, and now a poem, or? I think it's what it was, yeah. And now a poem by... Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson. Maybe he did say his name, but but yeah, that, yeah, that he did say his name. Said, okay, yeah. yeah, and it was usually some limerick. Not Emily. Yeah. Not Emily Dickinson. Nothing as good as you're going to say. <laughs> Thank you. Very very nice of you to say that. So our recipe this week mm-hmm. is in honor of our topic: brain fog. We have London Fog Vanilla Bean Shortbread, and these cookies have a special ingredient, Earl Grey tea. Now, for the history buffs in the audience, and we know there are many of you, Earl Grey tea has been around since the early 1800s. It's a black tea flavored with the oil from the rind of the bergamot orange, commonly grown in Italy. It was named after Earl Grey, a British prime minister in the 1830s. So pip, pip, cheerio, and all that, and enjoy making these for your next funeral lunch. Wait a minute. Are are you telling me Earl Grey has all these ingredients and is not like Sir Earl Grey himself? Well, that's what they would have you believe. But the conspiracy theorists in the audience Mm -hmm. really know that it has... Sir Earl Grey. Da, da, da. All right, good. Now that's cleared up. I have for you today an excerpt from an article by Sarah Harrison called My Grandfather's Death Party with a Final Gift to His Family. My grandfather liked to stage a scene. He moved to California in 1935 to work in Hollywood, becoming a director for B-list movies and TV shows like 77 Sunset Strip, and the Mickey Mouse Club. Despite his work, he didn't particularly care for film and didn't own a TV until 1964. What he liked was the process of making a show, reworking the script, setting the angles, being in charge. Like so many in his generation, he was a multi-a-day pack smoker. A Philip Morris cigarette hangs from his lower lip in nearly every photograph I have of him. 
He lived with emphysema for decades, maintaining his last sliver of healthy lung tissue through a combination of lap swimming, walking, scotch, and luck. But at 97 years old, he had flagging energy. Death is famously one of the few certainties in this life. It's also reality that doctors, patients, and families tend to avoid. In a recent report, the Lancet Commission on the Value of Death notes that today death is not so much denied but invisible. At the end of life, people are often alone, shut away in nursing homes or intensive care units, insulating most of us from the sounds, smells, and look of mortality. Not so for my grandfather. Though he didn't rush headlong into the hereafter, he didn't want to wait for his faculties to fail one by one. He wanted to die with a modicum of independence with hospice care. On an unseasonably warm Los Angeles day in May 2011, a cast of characters, his children, grandchildren, and friends, assembled at his home, ready to play their part in the last act of his life. What ensued was a five-day tropical vacation. My grandfather couldn't stand the air conditioning, so we wore bathing suits most of the day and caged languidly through the withered photo albums. I floated the sacred waters of my childhood, the swimming pool, and harvested lemons from the prolific backyard tree. When six o'clock rolled around, my grandfather would ask, Who's pouring me a scotch? Cocktails, cheese olives, and stale water crackers appeared. We listened to classical records and told stories and took turns cooking dinner. How perverse it may sound, that death party, as my sister and I came to call those five days, remains one of the most profound experiences of my life. For a brief moment in my grandfather's party, I got to slow down the inevitable, to be with the people I grew up with in the place we held sacred and dear. Amid that joyful reverie, I had time to sober up and confront the simple reality that my grandfather wanted to die, that everything would change. I saw that the man who had commanded movie sets and TV crews now rarely left his house, that his sweaters hung loose on his stooped shoulders, and that his rose bushes withered with neglect. That things were already changing, whether I was ready for it or not. People often talk about death as if it's the worst thing that can happen to someone, as if it's something that must be avoided at all costs. Better to age, however, painfully, however diminished, than to ever admit that we are mortal. But at the end of a long, full life, my grandfather was done. He died with power and agency, love and support. To have that death, he had to acknowledge and embrace his mortality. At our death party, he gave his family a chance to accept that fact, too. When I miss him most, when I married or when my nieces were bored, I pay homage with a cocktail, a toast, and a memory. I think about one evening during the party when, as the room hummed with humans, he held my head in his hands. A few days later, he had his usual scotch, went to bed, and died. In my memory, this moment, the moment when we looked at each other, when we said, I love you, and when we let each other go, lives on.
It comforts me when I pass through caverns of sadness and am marooned in sunless seas of grief. Isn't that wonderful? That is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I want to have a death party like that. Absolutely. You know, and we just, talk, you know, a couple of, a uh, few podcasts ago, um, you know, we spoke of Shotzi uh, Weisberger, who lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And again, she, she planned, she planned how she wanted to die too. Her, and in the end, she, she had to make adjustments because she did not want to die with any sort of medication. She wanted to experience death to its fullest. And in reality, and in the form of tremendous pain kicked in and, and she had to rely on, on pain. But, but it's the same thing with both of these. I mean, you, you take control not only of your life, but you take control of your death, too. I mean, we, we, always, right. yeah, we always say, you know, prepare, you know, make sure your documents are in place. Make sure people know your wishes and that someone will advocate for you, your health care proxy. And it was nice with this gentleman. I mean, his whole family was, was there for him. Yeah. Well, and I think this shows that when you do take control and and acknowledge that you are going to die, that you say, well, how am I going to do it and yeah. and do it your way? Exactly. If you don't take control over it, you're going to do it someone else's way. And it chances are it's not going to make you very happy. No, not not at all. Um, and the whole thing with, you know, with advocating for yourself, there are even – you know, I, I live in New York, you know, quote, liberal New York. And, you know, things like a health care proxy. I mean, th those are documents that are legal documents in this state. Marianne, there are still, you know, hospitals and doctors who will look at something and say, oh, no, 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 no. No intubation. No, 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 no. I'll, I'll take care of this. And they intubate somebody. Though on, you know, the documents, it clearly states no intubation. Don't get me started. So, yes, please plan ahead. Make sure you have someone who will speak for you. It may not be a family member, but, uh, you know, you know. So, please go to our webpage for the recipe and additional resources for this program. We ask for your support in the form of a tax-deductible contribution so that we can continue to offer you quality programming. Thank you in advance for going to our website to make your donation, as well as following us on Facebook and Instagram. Visit us at www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org. Marianne? Thanks, Charlie. So today I'm going to talk about brain fog, which can result from grief, pregnancy, long COVID, chemotherapy, which in chemotherapy is called chemo brain, traumatic brain injury, post-concussion symptoms, uh, lupus, post-treatment Lyme disease, menopause. So there's a lot of different things that can cause brain fog. And when I got pregnant at 39, my um, OB said to me, well, you know, let me tell you what's what's going to happen. Because I was, you know, finishing up my PhD and was very, you know, kind of fast and moved fast, thought fast. <laughs> and she said, let me tell you what's going to happen. She said, your brain is going to fall into your uterus. And you're going to have trouble <laughs> thinking. Yeah, and I laughed at her deal. just like you okay, did. Yeah, uh -huh. mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And sure enough, um, I got brain fog and the people who worked with me were laughing hysterically at me because, you know, like I said, I moved fast. I thought fast and I, you know, was things were not clicking along as they had been. And I, I don't know that they've ever clicked along again <laughs> in quite the same way. <laughs> so that's really, you know, that's like the pregnancy-related brain fog. You can have it with menopause. And I, I mean, I've had it very badly with grief. Um, when my fiancé uh, left and had an affair, I went in, I was in a very you know, sad place. And I can remember, like I teach online and going into fix something online, I couldn't remember how to do it. And I, and I'd done that, you know, taught online for years. I knew how to do these things, Mm -hmm. but my brain couldn't, couldn't do it. Simple things, simple being able to concentrate and move through life for that really first year was so extremely difficult. And I had to make um, a lot of accommodations in terms of how I managed things and how I made sure, you know, my patients stayed safe and things like that because my brain was foggy. So I thought it was time that maybe we talked about that. While the symptoms of brain fog can be like those experienced by people with early stage Alzheimer's disease and other conditions associated with older age, brain fog can affect people at any age. Brain fog doesn't usually worsen over time, and it may not last forever. Some people can carry on with their lives, while others are completely disabled by it. People with brain fog have reported that the effects can be life-altering and shattering. In medical terms, brain fog is referred to as a cognitive dysfunction, which are problems with closely related tasks such as concentration, information processing, memory, thinking and reasoning, and making sense of language. It tends to affect what's called executive functions, which are the thinking that is essential for planning, organizing information, following directions, multitasking. Brain fog is exactly what it sounds like, a feeling that's something like like you're shrouded in a thick fog. You're not quite able to grasp ideas. You feel confused or disoriented. You think slowly and have trouble concentrating or recalling memories. It's forgetting how to do normal routines, remembering where you parked your car, And it makes it very hard to work and maintain social activities. And when I talk about, like, remembering where you park your car, it's not a matter of, oh, I went out, I came in the store, so I'm down this way, and, oh, in a second, you find your car. It's walking around the entire parking lot and not being able to find your car. Mm. It's been documented that up to 85% of people with long COVID have brain fog. And it's been called a neurological health crisis. And up until these large numbers of people with long COVID, there were very few studies about the brain changes leading to brain fog. It really wasn't that long ago when patients would ask about having chemo brain and their healthcare practitioners did not address what a debilitating condition this was for them. Although the long COVID studies are just being published, there have been some interesting findings. So, time for a little science. 
Uh, the brain gray matter is tissue that's made up of neurons, and neurons are the brain structures that receive and transmit signals to different parts of the body. Think of them like your telephone lines, you know, mm-hmm. outside. Yeah. Um, these are thought to be responsible for thinking, and the brain white matter consists of cells supporting and connecting those neurons. All humans lose gray matter matter as a part of healthy aging. But those with previous COVID infections in a study published in Nature showed that 0.2 to 2% additional reduction in brain size on average compared with those who were not affected between brain scans that were done. They also had greater tissue damage in regions connecting to the primary olfactory cortex, which is what links smell And they also saw greater cognitive decline. The effect of these biological changes um, aren't known in terms of how the person functions and whether or not they might be temporary or longer lasting. There's no documented part of the brain that has been found to cause the symptoms, and standard memory screening tests do not seem to effectively document them. This makes finding a potential cause or treatment really difficult. A few tests that you can talk to your healthcare practitioner about are getting a sleep study to see if you have sleep apnea. And I'll tell you, Charlie, for my clinical practice, a lot of people have sleep apnea. They don't think they do and until they get a sleep study and use their CPAP. They don't realize how bad they've been feeling mm-hmm. and how kind of difficult life has been. You can get blood tests for vitamin B Um, deficiencies. They can check your hormones. They can look for thyroid problems. Another difficulty is that brain fog is that you appear healthy, but you feel horrible. Uh, The associated stigma prevents people from getting adequate care when healthcare practitioners tend to write them off or say, oh no, you're young. Don't worry about it. You'll get better. Hmm. Or Look, your brain scan came back as normal. There's nothing wrong with you. But you know things are just not right. The most common cause of brain fog across all causes have been found to be brain inflammation. It's what your body does when faced with things that are there are not supposed to be in the body. So, you know, like if you got, you know, a a thorn in your skin, your body would have an inflammatory response. You would see some swelling. You would see some redness because your body is going to go around that thing that's not supposed to be there and heal it, make, you know, try to make it leave and keep you healthy. Well, that's kind of what's going on in the brain is that the brain says, wait, there's stuff in here. It's not supposed to be in here. And so we're going to swell up a while and try to fix this. But that swelling um, is what causes the defunction in the neural cells, which causes the brain fog. So, since scientists are still working on understanding the biology of brain fog, is there really anything that we can do? Well, I got a list for you. We'll put it in the show notes so that you can um, print it out because if you've got brain fog, you're not going to remember this. So, <laughs> well, makes, it's makes just sense. true. No, but it's true. But it's true. It's you're right. It's just yeah. true. Yeah. So, first thing is make lists. 
Um, get in the habit of keeping a piece of paper with you or a small notebook, a pen, whatever. Get something cute that you can put in your pocket, in your purse. Make lists. The fantasy that you will remember it is a fantasy. You're not. Write it down. Um, if you're doing difficult tasks, take some breaks between those tasks. It's you, your brain before brain fog and your brain after brain fog are a different brain. So when you say, oh, I ought to always be able to do this. Yes, I understand. But now with the brain fog, you can't. And so take a break in between. Keep a diary for a few days to see what times of day your thinking is the clearest. Then plan to do complex tasks at those times. If you're clearer in the morning, do the complex things then. Like Charlie will always try to do a recording in the evening, and I'll say, Charlie, I'm not at my best in the evening. My brain is tired by then. And um, so I make him get up early and do it with me early. Um, <laughs> use visual reminders like calendars, digital alerts, timers. Everybody just about carries a phone nowadays. There are timers on there. There's a note function on there. Have one of your grandchildren teach you how to use it, set it up for you, and um, use it. And I'm not, I'm not being mean, Charlie. I'll hand my phone to my kids and say, I want to be able to do this. Will you set it up for me? And Absolutely, I get an eye yeah. roll, yes. but I get my phone back with, you know, the information. I, I, I'm not any better at setting this stuff up, but use them. Um, prioritize exercise. Start slow, work up to about 30 minutes a day, five times a week. Talk with your healthcare practitioner before you start. Exercise increases neurons in the hippocampus, which is essential for memory creation and storing, while also improving thinking skills. And I know we talk about exercise a lot in this program, and you think, oh my God, they must be so fit. Trust me, <laughs> I am not... I am not a happy exerciser, but the one thing that we do have a lot of science for is the positive effects yeah. of exercise. Yep. So we only mention it because it's, it's in the evidence. I'm not making it up. It's just fact. Eat a healthy diet, especially a Mediterranean-style meals. Um, healthy diets include olive oil, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and beans, Whole grains have been proven to improve thinking, memory, and brain health. Now, there are brain foods, and I'm giving you a list in the show notes that, um, and there's an acronym. The, the acronym is brain foods. And so it's B is for berries and beans, R is for rainbow fruits and vegetables, A is antioxidants, I include lean proteins and plant-based proteins. N is for nuts. F is for fiber-rich foods and fermented foods. Fermented foods are things like kombucha and yogurt, things like that. Mm -hmm. O is for oils. Um, the other O in foods is for omega-rich foods. D is for dairy. And S is for spices. And if you go to um, the link that for this brain food, you'll get a lot of ideas about what foods those are. Avoid alcohol and drugs. Give your brain the best chance to heal itself by avoiding substances that can negatively affect it. Sleep well. 
Sleep is a time when the brain and body can clear out toxins and work toward healing. Give your body the sleep it needs. Ideally, we need about eight hours of sleep a night. More than that can lead to a depressed mood, and less than that can give, doesn't give the brain enough time to rest and reset. Participate in social activities. We are social animals. Not only do social activities benefit our mood, but they help our thinking and our memory as well. Engage in activities such as brain-stimulating activities, like listening to music, practicing mindfulness, and keeping a positive mental attitude. I found a really good article by MIT neuroscientist Tara Swart, who published her list of what not to do if you have brain fog and forgetfulness. So, there are four things. One, never let your body get tense for too long. Even if you think you're relaxed, your body may be physically tense, like stiff neck, back, shoulder pain. This can be a result of stress from things like unfinished tasks or looming deadlines. So when she notices that her body is feeling tense, she immediately does an exercise that she calls box breathing. So um, the first step of box breathing is inhale through your nose so that you slowly count to four seconds. Hold your breath for four seconds. Exhale through your nose, releasing all the air from your lungs as in a slow count for four seconds. Hold your breath for a count of four seconds. And repeat four times. Box breathing is a simple way to help calm your brain. Studies also show that it can reduce levels of cortisol, which is the chemical that is produced in the body when your body is under stress. Her number two thing is never use screens one hour before bedtime. Now, think about it. I, for me, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, the last thing I do is kind of look through my phone, yeah. set my alarm. And she's saying, don't. As tempting as it might be to scroll through Instagram or watch TV before, bed, before bedtime, these activities can be too stimulating for the brain. Instead, try to read a book before turning out the lights. If that doesn't help you sleep, do a relaxation scan, squeezing and releasing muscles. Start at your toes, all the way up to your head. Her number three is never load up on glucose. I tell you, I'm just like losing on every one of these things. <laughs> if your gut isn't healthy, your brain power can falter too. Uh, she strengthens her gut-brain axis by maintaining a diet rich in hydrating foods, healthy fats, and digestible protein. Most of all, avoid sugar. Your brain uses glucose or sugar as, few, as fuel, but refined carbohydrates like high fructose corn syrup found in sodas are not good sources of food, fuel. Your brain gets a burst of too much glucose and then it has too little. This can lead to irritability, tiredness, mental confusion, and impaired judgment. She also says that she eats foods rich in magnesium whole grains, leafy greens, dried beans, and legumes to help regulate her mood and sleep cycle. She also says, have your last caffeinated drink of the day before 10 a.m. 10 a.m. What? Yeah. Really? I, I read that and I thought, 
oh my God, so I shouldn't take my nighttime pills with Diet Pepsi? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you want to interpret it that way, yeah. Okay. (laughs) But she's a neuroscientist. She studies this. 10 a.m., last caffeinated drink of the day, no later than 10 a.m. Mm. And her last bit of advice is never go a day without meditating. So she says she meditates for at least 12 minutes a day. And doing this at nighttime can help mitigate brain fog for the next day. And what she says to do is remove all distractions from your room, sit or lie down in a comfortable position, take deep breaths. Quietly observe your thoughts. Whatever thoughts come, simply acknowledge them and return your focus to your breathing. If you don't like to meditate, you can do a mindful activity such as cooking, taking a quiet walk. You can do adult coloring. Do one page of an adult coloring book. That will take you about 12 minutes. And that can be your mindfulness for the day. Don't put on music, though. Don't have, you know... 20 people around you, go someplace quiet and sort of just get into your coloring. So brain fog, Charlie, is not all in your head. Well, it is, but you can make some changes in your lifestyle choices that can help manage your symptoms until the clouds roll by. Any questions about that, Charlie? What you just said about um, not listening to music. I, no, I, no, I, no, 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 no. No, I said I not on? listening to music while you're coloring. Oh, like, I see. So, so when, just one, when you're one doing, activity, not, got it. Okay, okay. Right. When you're doing your mindfulness, uh-huh. you want to be mindful. And right. so if yeah. you're asking your brain to process music, and then I know with you, you'll think, oh, that would be a good music score, or that was a music score for this movie, and then you're off on a rabbit chase about mm. movies and actors and other things. I mean, I'm maybe I'm just making this up, Charles, but I'm thinking I'm right. So <laughs> do one thing at a time, you know. So if you're doing your coloring, just do your coloring. If you're doing your breathing, just do your breathing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's if you're doing about, your walking, just walk. No music. Yeah, it's not about multitasking. Yep. All right. Got it. Epitaph by Merritt Malloy is often read during funeral services and memorials for its heartwarming take on life after death. It was even featured on an episode of NCIS. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men that wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give to me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known or loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live on in your eyes and not on your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands, by letting bodies touch bodies and by letting go of children that need to be free. Love doesn't die. People do. So when all that's left of me is love, give me away. I'll see you at home in the earth. 
Mm. That's nice. Yeah, it really is. It is. Yeah, and, and and it was. I was watching an episode of NCIS and I stumbled across this, and uh, yeah, it was terrific. I was not familiar with it. Mm. Thanks for that. And folks, please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete, and from Marcus Tilius Cicero, statesman in ancient Rome, the life of the dead is placed in the memory of the living. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, a death party can be a joyous experience, and every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.